Would you join me in prayer? Father, we're grateful today for uh, being able to be part of this uh, opportunity to uh, give you praise, uh, to tell you uh, with our songs, uh, with our hearts, uh, how much we love you. We're thankful that we were uh, able to share uh, with Dalton and his family and the joy today um, of this, uh, of everything that it represents. And we're grateful that, um, uh, that our eyes uh, were on this moment and that we got to be part of this great celebration. And we pray through Christ. Amen. <clears throat> you know, in the work of uh, pastoral ministry, we're not ready for that slide yet. So, just go to anything else. <laughs> you know, it's hard enough to work on good jokes. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like the, it, it reminds me of the like, okay, ask me two questions, right? What do you do for a living and what do you find the hardest part of your job is? Go ahead. I'm a comedian. <laughs> Timing. In the work of pastoral ministry, it is not uncommon to be concerned or to worry about some of the sheep in the pasture. I mean, it's, an, it's a common thing, right? So last week, I shared a story with no redeeming value, right? It was about sorting through a box of Lucky Charms because I wanted to know what the ratio was between the toasted oat cereal and the marshmallows. I had no idea how important this topic would be, right? I didn't know the, the depths of your heart that I was able to touch by telling that story. I, I told a story for about a minute, and I spoke about Jesus for about 20 minutes. And what did you want to talk about afterwards? All you wanted to talk about was Lucky Charms. I'm like, I'm up here talking about Jesus, I'm talking about redemption, and everybody wants to know, so what was the ratio between toasted oat cereal and marshmallows? And apparently, uh, some of you out there are Cracker Jacks and Raisin Bran sorters, because I heard from you as well, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, we've definitely got some Cracker Jacks out here. Absolutely. And how do I get sponsorships for all this product placement and all these mentions of things? I, you know, I didn't imagine what an important question this would be to you, right? I mean, sure, Jesus talks about a camel and the eye of a needle, right? I mean, that's an important question, okay, right? You know, uh, Nicodemus is asking, if a man is born, how can he be born again? Like, step aside, Nicodemus. We've got cereal to sort, right? Because you're all asking me not only what was the ratio of toasted oats to marshmallows, but even a few of you said, and did you sort the marshmallows? So you see why I'm concerned? I promise you, I had no idea. I wasn't even going to share that story with you last week. I just decided at the last minute I'm going to share this story. And then I discover we are not the only ones asking these questions. It is a highly popular Google search 
There's a video on Pinterest that addresses this question. There's a Reddit thread that addresses this question. There is a teacher resource site that you can buy lesson plans to teach math using the Lucky Charms ratio as your lesson. There's a Prezi Science Fair project out there that's dedicated to this big, great question. And then, now I'm ready, I get an email from Honeydew Labs that gives me the exact ratio of not just toasted oats to the marshmallows, but they went through the trouble of even sorting the marshmallows, and they provided their exhaustive scientific research. It is available on our website. For those of you who so desperately want to know, you know what I'm starting to think? I'm starting to think that maybe my story had some redeeming value after all that there was something worth in sharing it. Okay, so we've been in a series uh, looking at the work. You can, yeah, thank you. We've been in a series looking at the work of grace in our lives, and we've been interacting with one out of two sections in Titus. There's these two sections in Titus that are considered uh, pretty much the core of Christianity. And uh, we've been looking at the first section over the past several weeks, and we've been looking at the individual teachings or the individual doctrines one at a time. We've talked about grace and forgiveness of sins. We've talked about sin and salvation. We've talked about redemption. We've talked about lucky charms ratios, you know, all those very important things that are on our minds. And as we get ready to close out this first section with an eye towards the second section, we want to spend a little bit of time this morning in Psalm 130, and here's the reason. Uh, we looked at Psalm 130 last week. It was our Scripture reading, and it was our Scripture reading again this week, and it's because Psalm 130 is connected to this first section in Titus. Most people don't really uh, see or, 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 or really think about these connections that we find in Scripture. But what the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 130 is exactly what Paul is writing about in this first section of Titus that we've just looked at. So, for example, in Titus 2.14, what Paul says about Jesus is that He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all sin, from all iniquity, from all lawlessness. And in Psalm 130, verse 8, the song closes with the writer talking about God saying, and He will redeem Israel from all iniquity or sin or lawlessness. You can use those words. Now, they're both interacting with this idea of redemption, but they're doing it in different ways. You look at the way Paul is interacting in his letter to Titus, and he's giving us this as an inspirational teaching. But then you look a bit further, and you see the way that the writer of Psalm 130 is doing this, and you see that, that the writer is interacting with these same concepts, these same great big themes, especially this idea of redemption, not just the need for redemption that we have, but also the action of redemption. What God is doing or what God will do to carry out the action of redemption. And so they're both engaging in these two separate ways 
the, the role of God as Redeemer and His work in redeeming people. Now, Psalm 130 is unusual because it has a couple of distinctions. Um, it is one of the few songs in the Bible, and that's what all psalms are. They're just songs. It's one of the few songs that could qualify for two Grammy Awards because it, it fits into two different categories. Uh, it has dual status as a song. You could find this song nominated in the contemporary Christian category, but you could also find this particular psalm nominated in the indie folk category. It's, it's a dual status. The first status is a collection of 15 songs in the book of Psalms that are all called songs of ascents, as in going up. These were pilgrim songs, and there's 15 of them in the Psalms, and, and it's believed that what was happening is that they, they took these songs, and these are the songs they were singing on their way to Jerusalem as they were going up to Jerusalem for a celebration. So it's one of 15 songs in this category as a song of ascents. You may even see that in your title if your Bible does titles. But the second way that this song has a classification is uh, as a song of, of, of penitence. And these are penitential psalms. And that's just a big fancy word. It just means repentance. It's a song of repentance. And there are seven of these songs in the book of Psalms, and they're so important. They're talking about such foundational, fundamental ideas of redemption, but not just the way that they're talking about redemption, but how they're talking about redemption. They are so hopeful. Psalm 130 has so much hope in it. It has so much hope that the writer of this psalm is not only talking about their hope in God for redemption, but the thrust of the song, the movement of the song, is for other people to trust in the redemption of God. That this would be their focus, that this is where their eyes would be. That even in the midst of a very bleak and dark and, and despairing situation, that they would not focus on that, but that they would have their eyes pointed towards the God who redeems. This is why one commentary that I read said, Luther came to these seven songs of repentance, and he called them Paul Psalms, Pauline Psalms. He says, it's as if the Apostle Paul is writing these songs. So maybe this is on the Apostle Paul's mind as he's writing to Timothy, as he's writing to Titus, as he's writing to all these churches, as he's writing to the Galatians, as he's writing to the Ephesians. Anytime Paul is telling them, don't trust in what you do, don't trust in your record, trust in what Jesus has done. Maybe he's thinking about Psalm 130. And so this psalm has four sections. We're, we're going to work through it quickly. It has four sections, but it's built around three themes. And the first theme is the weight of sin. The weight of sin. And so you see even in your Bibles how this opens up. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. 
I mean, this is the first inkling we get that, I mean, this is a penitent psalm. This is a psalm of repentance. Something is happening. There is, there's trouble here. Something is going on in the situation. And what's happening is that the, the author, the writer of this psalm is dealing first with the weight of sin. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. And then look at verse 2, which says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. Look at what he's asking for. Mercy for mercy. In this first section then, as the weight of sin, the gravity of of sin is like the gravity of water that's pushing this rider down. And those of you who have ever been underwater, you know the deeper you go, the more gravity there is. The more this pushes down and down and down upon you, the deeper the push, the greater the pressure. The word depths that's being used here is used elsewhere um, in the Old Testament and in the Psalms. It's used as mire, as in the mire. This word actually means a place with no foothold. It means that the water is so deep that your toes not only can't touch, but you know that if you keep going down further, you will never resurface. This word is used throughout the Bible to describe a deep pit. It's also used to describe the word distress. The psalmist is saying, in my distress, I cry out to you. So this plea for mercy, it comes from a place of deep anguish. It comes from a place of deep distress. And so we see this word used throughout Scripture as a metaphor. And it's used as a metaphor for adversity, for trouble. Especially when somebody is feeling so disconnected from God that they feel alienated from Him. That they feel like that they're talking and that they're the only one talking because they hear nothing from Him. They feel so distant, they feel so alone, that this is the cry for mercy. Oh Lord, hear my voice, hear my plea. Now we think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke chapter 22. We think about Him in this moment as He faces the reality of bearing our sin. And as He's facing this reality of bearing our sin, He knows that bearing our sin means He will be separated from God. And this burden presses upon Him like the gravity of water pushing Him under. And the Bible tells us that He cries out in anguish. Same word. Same idea. We, we think about this idea of Peter when he has this moment in his life when he's, he's walking on water, right? And things are going well for about an eighth of a second. Like most of the jokes I try to tell. And like most of the jokes I try to tell, there he starts flailing and sinking. And when we pick up this narrative in Matthew 14, we see him flailing, we see him sinking, we see him drowning, and we hear him cry out in the text, Lord, save me. It's a cry for help. It's a plea for mercy. Save me. The water is over my head. The deeper the push, the greater the pressure. The weight of sin causes us to be pushed deeper and deeper, far below. And this this weight of sin that the writer of Psalm is trying to deal with, see what it leads to? He knows something about God. 
He knows something about God that in the midst of this situation, when the weight of sin is pushing him deeper and deeper underwater, he cries out for mercy. He cries out for mercy. Save me. The water is over my head. This is an immediate, instinctual response. The Bible describes the mercy of God in in, in two really interesting ways. First, as the tender mercy of God. And then as the great mercy of God. The great and tender mercy of God. Of God. You know, the very first thing that God reveals about Himself, the very first thing He says as His number one character attribute is that He is a God who is merciful. It's the first thing He says. A God who is merciful. And so, because God is merciful, God is mercy. Because God is mercy, God is merciful. And this boy, do you see what a fantastic truth this leads us to? That the deeper the depth of our sin, the greater the mercy of God. The more we are pushed, the more we are pushed under, the more aware we are of the weight of our sin, the more it opens our eyes to the beauty of God, to His love for us, and His great gift for us. Psalm 130 opens with a cry for mercy, looking to God for His great and tender mercy. Psalm 130 opens and looks to a God who is merciful, who is mercy, because the weight of sin is too much to bear. It's this same weight that moves us to cry out for mercy when deep calls to deep. Let's stand together. From the depths of my soul I cry out, from the depths of my soul I cry out, Lord, can you hear me, have mercy, O God. From the depths of my soul I cry out, in the midst of the sea I cry out. In the midst of the sea I cry out, save me, the water is over my head. In the midst of the sea I cry out, there is a time to mourn, there is a time to time for sorrow and deep calls to deep. In my moments of grief I cry out. In my moments of grief I cry out. Have you forgotten me? Where are you, Lord? In my moments of grief I cry out, there is a time to mourn, there is a time to weep, there is a 
time for sorrow when deep calls to deep. From the depths of my soul I cry out. From the depths of my soul I cry out. Still I will praise you, Lord. Still I will praise you, Lord. Seated. In the first section of Psalm 130, the, songs move, the song moves from the weight of sin to a cry for mercy. And then in this second section of Psalm 130, which starts in verse 3, we see the song moves to a confession of sin. It's a really important way to understand and see how this movement of this song is going. I mean, there's no, there's no let's just stay here in this condition for a while and see how it works out. The movement is quick. The movement is forward. The movement is almost immediate that the weight of sin prompts this instinctual response to cry out for mercy. But then it makes the writer of the song be aware and a willingness to confess sin. Now, this section of Scripture is so great. What it's doing is it's describing the hopeless situation that we would be in if God were the kind of God that keeps a record of sin. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Who could stand? I mean, we learn something very important about God. We learn something very important about His great and tender mercy because it's from His great and tender mercy, verse 4, that the psalmist cries out, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. A couple of weeks ago, I, I asked you to just be thinking during, during your week about He gave Himself for us. Boy, this is another great phrase just to think through in your week. With you, there is forgiveness. When Ryan talked about it today, he just he said the right word. Because Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, it covers our sin, but it doesn't cover up our sin. Those are two different things. The blood of Jesus covers our sin, but with you there is forgiveness. Oh Lord, if you were to keep a record of wrong, God doesn't keep a record. Forgiveness means that there is no record of your wrong. That, 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 that someone has hacked into the central computer and has expunged your record, has deleted your record, your record does not contain a record of wrongs because of who Jesus Christ is. And what He has done for us. Oh, who could stand before you, Lord? Who could stand before you if you were the kind of God that kept a record of our wrongs? There's a, I was going to say sidebar, Your Honor. That last word, feared, that's a tough word. Um, it, it's a tough word because there's a lot of fear that comes into the word feared. 
So it's important to understand what is being said here and why it's being said. You know that that weight of sin that, that pushes you down? Satan wants to keep pushing you down. He wants to keep pushing you down until you are drowned in what you've done. And God's mercy is trying to lift you up from that. It's trying to say you don't have to be swallowed up by that. And you're not defined by the wrong that you've done. You're defined by the right that He has done. That His work for us on the cross is now your identity, is now your allegiance. It's who you are now. And so... The people in our life who just keep trying to bring up all those things that we've done in our life that were wrong, boy, you got to quit listening to them. Because they're not singing a song that God is singing to us. With you there is forgiveness. So that what will happen? So that we'll be afraid of God? Now, it's important to understand that this, this Hebrew word here, it's describing the proper submission that would exist when a human being has an ethical relationship with God. Boy, I realized that sentence was a mouthful. But a lot of times, we try to approach God as if He is a human. And it's the reverse, that God is coming into our humanity. And He's dealing with us on our level, and so... It's about having the proper submission and this ethical responsibility of the one who created us. So what that means in in, in other areas of life is that we give up control, that we surrender, that we are not the captains of our own ship, that we are not in control of our own destiny, that we don't get to make all the decisions for ourselves. That because of this accepting of Jesus as Savior also means that we accept Jesus as Lord. And this means He has will over our will. And so it's an idea that's being presented and there's this nuance in the Hebrew word. It's talking about a reverence or a respect that you would have of someone who stands in awe of God. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? No one can stand before you, God. No one. My record of wrongs, it has broken our relationship. I cannot stand before you. And yet, because of your action of redemption, because you are a God in your mercy who forgives, because you are a God who hears my voice when I am in the depths, because you're a God who is attentive to my plea for mercy, because you are a God who keeps no record of wrong, because you are a God who forgives sin, I stand in awe of you. Let's stand. You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for comprehension, like nothing ever 
You can grasp your infinite wisdom. Who can fathom the depths of your love? You are beautiful beyond description. Majesty and throne above. And I stand, I stand in all of you. I stand, I stand in all of you. Holy God, to whom all praise is due, I stand in all of you. beautiful beyond description to marvelous words to wonderful for comprehension like nothing ever seen or heard who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depths of your love? You are beautiful beyond description. Majesty and throne above. And I stand, I stand in all of you. I stand, I stand in all of you. Holy God, to whom all praise is due, I stand in all of you. And I stand, I stand in all of you. I stand, I stand in all of you. Holy God, to whom all praise is due, I stand in all of you. seated. So in the first two sections, we trace this movement. The weight of sin leads to a cry of mercy, which leads to the confession of sin. In the final two sections, we see the singers, the writers, full confidence in redemption. And it's so good. It's so good. Because you see, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope Boy, I don't like to wait. I have a hard time waiting. And the psalmist is saying that waiting is an expression of hope. It's an expression of trust. You notice that the writer has already recognized there's a lot he can do to get himself in the depths. There's nothing he can do to get himself out of the depths. So he waits I wait for the Lord. 
And not just me, you see, it involves his whole being. My soul, my soul waits, it's this longing. And in his word, I hope. Okay, you know he's not actually reading the Bible, right? I mean, I, I, this is such an interesting phrase to me. I mean, he's actually writing the Bible right now. And so I look at that part, in his word, I hope. See, he knows something about God or has heard something from God. And he knows that in this moment, his full confidence, his full trust in who God is, is to hope and wait on his word. Give us such faith. Give us such Hope. I mean, it's like, it's like we've stumbled onto a Mumford and Sons song. I will wait. I will wait for you. It's like this is what he's going to do. I'm just going to wait, Lord. And it's such a bold declaration of confidence in God. It's such a bold declaration of trust in, in who God is. And then his hope, it moves him from his hope in the Word to the hope in the Lord. If you go to this verse 7 and you see this idea of what's happening, you see this transition. Go to verse 7, please. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. Okay, now we've moved from a Mumford and Sons song to a Wren Collective song. I will trust the promise that you will carry me safe to shore. Oh, isn't this great, this movement? Do you love the way it describes the redemption of God? Did you notice it? It's not that just with God there is redemption. With God there is plentiful redemption. The redemption of God is not just level 10. The redemption of God goes all the way to 11. It's not just redemption. It's plentiful redemption. It's not just abundance. It's superabundance. It's not just grace. It's grace upon grace. And the culmination of the writer's hope, the writer's trust of where he is in this life, recognizing that with God there is plentiful redemption. And then verse 8, this final expression of trust, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist is willing to wait and he's willing to trust the everlasting God. We were going to sing that song, but we're almost out of time. So we're just going to move on. We'll sing it next week. In exploring this great theme of redemption, do you see what's happening? Titus tells us that Jesus is the one who gave himself to redeem us from all iniquity. The psalmist is saying, but with you, God, there is forgiveness. Let me tell you why this faith is so remarkable, because the psalmist doesn't know how God will redeem all of Israel. He doesn't know. He just knows that God will. 
He knows that there will come a time when all iniquity of Israel will be redeemed, that all sin will be forgiven. He's hoping and trusting in God for something that he cannot see, that he does not know. You see how remarkable this faith is? He says, I will put my hope in his word, and we hope in Jesus, who is the word of God in the flesh. The psalmist says, I will hope in the Lord, and we see Jesus as our Lord, as our hope as the God Almighty. The psalmist says, hope in the Lord to redeem, and we see Jesus who is our Redeemer and our Healer. The psalmist says, He will redeem all of Israel from His iniquities, and we see Jesus on the cross as the way God redeems all people from sin. The writer is inviting people to hope in something that he cannot see. He doesn't know that Jesus will be the one to do all of this, but oh church, we do. We do. We know that this is talking about Jesus. We know that this is pushing us to Jesus. We know that this is moving us to Jesus. Do you remember the two followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus that we read about in the Gospel of Luke? Do you remember what they tell the resurrected Jesus because they have no idea that it's Jesus they're talking to? They say about Jesus, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Not even they understood what God would do through the cross to redeem us. But we do. We see Jesus high and lifted up. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain for us. Son of God and man, you are high and lifted up. And all the world will praise your name, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we don't have to invite you into the depths of our sorrow because you're already there with us. You're present in every moment of our life. And because we know that you are there, we, we just ask that you would open our eyes to see how your mercy, which is so great and so tender, to see how your mercy and your goodness and your love is working. Father, even in this moment, regardless of what the depth is, that it's working to make all things right, to redeem all things. So we will trust the promise that you will carry us safe to shore. Through Jesus, our Redeemer, we pray. Amen.